Well, today we're continuing our series, How God Shapes a Person for Impact. And we've been saying that often we will look at our heroes and we assume that they are born ready-made. And when we do so, we miss out on seeing the shapes and shaping and experiencing that takes place in those earlier years where God was at work, but no one was watching. A series looks at Moses before he ever faced a showdown with Pharaoh, uh, before any of the dramatic incidents that we are uh, that Moses is known for and we are familiar with, and it's seeking to understand what God might be doing in our own lives, how He might be seeking to shape and prepare us uh, for ways that He would have us to uh, impact uh, our world. Now, today we've come to the end of God's training period for. Uh, Moses. Last time we were, we were looking at how uh, he was shaping him in the desert and in his time in Midian, shape, shepherding the flocks. He's going to come to the end of that training period and God gives him a con- commencement speech. It's graduation day and he is going to embark on uh, this life of uh, ministry and receive God's calling. And uh, because it's a commencement speech that we're looking at for uh, from God to Moses today, um, I, I thought I just uh, would, just for comparison's sake, have you um, consider an, another commencement speech. There seems to be a consensus that uh, the 2020 high school commencement speech that was given by Nebraska Senator Ben Sass was probably the worst commencement speech of all time. It just seemed that everybody's in agreement. And, and I, I'm just reading the transcript of this speech. Uh, I, I can't say I disagree. Uh, he managed to insult the high schoolers for being out of shape. Then he ins- insulted high, uh, high school gym teachers for being high school gym teachers. He insi- insulted psychologists for doing psychology. Uh, he talked about murder hornets, black holes, the pandemic and the economy, just to inspire the students somehow, I guess. And then most strangely, he declared, and I quote here, everybody named Jeremy is the worst. Uh, just, if, if, if any of you are named Jeremy here this morning, I, I'd just like to apologize on his behalf. I'm sure there are worse people than you. I, I'm sure that's just not a true statement. Uh, but... But, you know, that, that, that's, that's one thing that you, th- those are some topics that you might com- uh, cover in a commencement speech. I, I don't know what you would say if you had that opportunity. If you were going to speak to a graduate, uh, speak to some, some, someone who is coming to the end of a training period and about to embark on something new. Today, we are seeing what God said to Moses in that situation. And in a sense, these are words that each of us need to hear as we face any new chapter of our lives. They are are some fundamentals that ground us and, uh, and focus us in on what's important. And if you've been in this series and seeing what God has done in Moses' life so far and some of the frustration that he has felt as he has tried to do this, that, and the other without God, you won't be surprised that God's commencement speech to Moses is going to focus on who God is and uh, how he is to be central in all that we do. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Exodus chapter uh, 3. Uh, it's, uh, there's a black church Bible in the rack in the seat in front of you. You can grab that. It's on page 43. 
And I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 3 all the way down to verse 15. Exodus 3, verses 1 to 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of God. Now there are three parts to this message, and they're all about God. The first is this, draw near to the, draw, draw near to the God of fire. God wants us to come near to him, and he calls Moses to him to, to, uh, to, to do that. He gets our attention. But he, he does so in a, uh, a ball of fire to remind us that he is one to be respected, to, treat it, to be treated with reverence and awe. So draw near to the God of fire. Now, when we meet Moses in verse 1, he's shepherding his father's flocks. But he must be struggling to find a place to shepherd them uh, because he, he's traveling far, far away from the place where he would normally have been with his flocks. And he has come to what's called Mount Horeb. Elsewhere in scripture, it's called Mount Sinai. And this will be a, a significant place of God revealing himself uh, in the future. Uh, now, God wants to get his attention, so he does, does so through a burning bush. It's the kind of bush that Moses knew was great for kindling. Only on this particular day, the bush isn't burning up. Uh, something unusual has happened, and it 
piques Moses' curiosity. God obviously is intending to get his attention, to draw him to himself, catch him, and have him uh, reflect on uh, his, his, uh, the words that he'll give. This picture of a, of a bush that doesn't burn up is for us a, a picture of God's self-sufficiency. He's the God that doesn't need kindling to start a fire. He, he, he is insufficient in and of himself. Philip Reichen describes it like this. He said, like the burning bush, God never runs out of fuel. His glory never dims. His beauty never fades. He always keeps burning bright. Now, there's a strange thing happening in the text because in verse 2, it says that the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And then in verse 4, it says God called to him out of the bush. And you're reading that and you're thinking, is this the angel of the Lord? Is this God? Is it both? And uh, what most people have concluded here is that this is God revealing himself, God who is invisible, God who is spirit, God who is everywhere, that God is revealing himself in the form of uh, an angelic messenger. It's like the first Zoom call, if in, in the sense that the screen isn't you, but you're talking through the screen, and it, 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 it is uh, representing you. Something similar is, is happening here with the angel of the Lord speaking to Moses in the midst of this burning bush. Now, what's strange about this encounter is that in verse 4, God calls to Moses, He has given this attraction to bring him over. He wants him to get close to him. But then as soon as he's got his attention, what does he say? In verse 5, he tells him, don't come near. So he's like, come here, come here, come here. And when he comes here, he's like, keep your distance. What's going on there? Well, God often reveals himself in fire because he wants to communicate something of his nature. We all know fire can burn you up. For fire can cause da- damage. When you were younger, your mother probably told you, don't play with matches, right? Fire is dangerous. And something of the, the dangerous nature of God is being communicated by this fire and by the fact that God says, don't come too close. Now, fire can have different properties, though. It doesn't always destroy uh, fire can can burn up uh, a forest if we are un- if we're not careful with how we deal with fire. Fire can also be used to burn off the impurities in silver and gold and other precious metals. So it can have a uh, a devouring effect. It can have a refining effect. And in fact, uh, both of those are, uh, are are ways that God is described in Scripture. Because God is holy. He's like a consuming fire to those who reject him. But because he is gracious, he is like a purifying or a refining fire to those who trust him and who approach him as holy. But the best case scenario is that fire is going to burn up what is impure about you. And that is, uh, for for those of us who, who trust him, who welcome his work in our lives, we invite that process. We invite him to, to do that work in our lives. Either way, we approach God with respect because we understand he is holy and you don't treat fire carelessly. That's why God tells Moses to take off his sandals. You're standing on holy ground. 
Now, just a quick show of hands. How many of you are no shoes in the house? Thank you very much, people. Anybody? Yeah, we got most of the hands going up. All right, so how are you feeling uh, when somebody barges into your home with their shoes on? You're, this, this is someone who has made assumptions about you. They've made assumptions about your home, assumptions about how they can act in your home. And if you're someone who said, no, that's, that's really not cool. I'm not good with that. I don't really like your shoes in my home, very, thank you very much. Uh, that is someone that you've just crossed off your Christmas card list. Maybe you unfriend them on Facebook. Like this is, this is, you're not warming up to this person and their casual attitude and their assumptions about you. But this is a passage that reminds us that often we, we treat God with that very same casual attitude, right? God who is holy, God who is fire, God who is to be treated with awe and reverence and respect, often we make assumptions about who he is, have a casual attitude to how we can act toward him and about him, and the message of take your sandals off, thank you very much, Moses, is that's not how you treat a holy and an awesome God. And so as we're hearing God's commencement speech to Moses, what do you need to really get straight about uh, about life and how you are going to embark on this? You need to draw near to God. You're not going to get through life and not going to thrive in life without him, but you need to come to him as a God of fire to recognize his holiness, to treat him with reverence. And that means we don't treat We don't treat him casually. We don't treat sin casually. We don't treat fellowship casually. We don't treat service casually. We don't treat God's word casually. We come with a sense of reverence, awe, of recognizing he is holy, set apart. He's he's above us, and he deserves to be treated with uh, that kind of respect. So we draw near to the God of fire. But then he, in, he invites Moses and us to trust at the God of the rearview mirror. Often in our relationship with God, we find ourselves in the present unable to see what God is doing. It is only as we look back through the rearview mirror, seeing back in reverse that we can see God's mercy. We can see God's faithfulness. We can see how God was orchestrating events which at the time seemed to us as uh, either either, uh, mundane and nothing to them or just strange and inexplicable. But uh, the, the message there is we, we can see God in reverse, and so we, we should look back onto what he's done and trust the God of the rearview mirror. Now, as Moses takes off his sandals, God begins to speak. And in verse 7, God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Now, if you were here last week, you know that the last thing that we dealt with in chapter 2 and the last thing that we looked at in the message was God sees, God hears, God knows. Exact same words here, repeated in the same order uh, to, uh, to, to remind us that God does hear, God does see, God does know. The problem is, 
it doesn't feel like God hears. It doesn't feel like he sees or he knows. Moses is still in a situation. He's 40 years in the desert, still tending the flocks, still feeling like his life was mostly a failure. He tried to do these good things. He tried to, to do what's right in the world. And he found himself falling on his face, uh, running away from, uh, from Egypt as a failure, and he spent 40 years thinking about it. It doesn't feel, frankly, that God notices, that God cares. Why hadn't God acted sooner if he saw? Why, hadn't, why didn't God just not, why did he let it happen at all if he really knew? Now, those are questions that are answered in other parts of scripture. But for Moses, for a man with his sandals off in front of a holy God of fire, you're not really thinking about lots of questions that you ought to be asking at that point. You are, are listening. And, and, and that is our primary uh, posture before God. We listen before one who is holy and one who knows more than we do. But uh, those, those struggles re remain. Now, trusting that God cares can sometimes be hard to do. What comes next for Moses, though, is harder. Because after telling him that he cares, he knows, he sees, and he understands, God is going to reveal what his plan is to deliver the Israelites. His plan is, Moses, you're going to do it. And, and, and for Moses to hear that is going to require a level of faith. In verse 10, he, he, he tells him, you're the person who is going to do this. Moses, at this point, doesn't know anything about the plagues. He doesn't know how God is essentially going to do everything, and Moses is going to be a bystander. Moses will be a mouthpiece. He'll say what God tells him to say, but like all the fireworks belong to God. He will do all the heavy lifting, but Moses doesn't know that at this point. He just hears an impossible t uh, invitation from God and has to be feeling uh, the, the, uh, how overwhelming that is. But again, it's an invitation to faith. You can't see what God is doing ahead of time because God wants, to tr wants us to trust him with the future. He wants us to pr trust him with the, with the present and only to look back at what he has done to give us courage to move forward. The God who has been faithful to us in the past will prove faithful again in the future. Now we empathize with Moses when he responds. Look in verse 11. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, I think you know what he's thinking, right? Last time I tried this, I ended up killing someone. Last time I tried this, the people of Israel didn't seem all that keen for me to be delivering them. Last time I tried this, I ended up on the most wanted list of Pharaoh and getting run out of the country as a fugitive. What are you thinking, God? Why, why on earth would you pick me? I seem like the least likely person to, uh, to, to lead this charge. Then in verse 12, God graciously speaks to Moses' fears, and he gives him a promise and a sign. Uh, the promise uh, to his fears of inadequacy, I can't do this, you know how things went last time. He just says, but I will be with you. 
And, and the, the message there is that with God at your side, your contribution really isn't the deciding factor. If God has chosen to use you in a particular assignment, your ability, power, experience, and confidence levels, those really aren't the things that are going to turn the tide. If God is at your side, he can accomplish what he has purposed to do. But it requires our faith. We have to trust that he will do what he has called us to do. We have to trust that him at our side, him going before us, will be enough. And that calls for something that often we struggle to believe, struggle to deal with. It's made harder when we've had experiences, and many of you have, we've had experiences where we've trusted in someone to be there for us, and they let us down. We, we kind of looked to them for support, and they just weren't there when we needed them. Uh, one of the times I experienced that was uh, in uh, the lead up to summer vacation when we were in Japan. Uh, in Japan, every summer, all of the elementary school kids uh, are, get up and the parents uh, in, the, in that neighborhood will lead morning exercises for the children to get them out of bed super early, start their day with exercise with the, with the understanding, then they'll go home uh, excited, energized, and get to their homework because you have summer homework uh, uh, to carry you through so that you're continuing to study year-round. Anyway, uh, my turn came. So what they do with these exercises, they have, for, for more than 100 years, they have these radio exercises broadcast nationally, and uh, everybody knows them because they, they do them in many companies, they do them in schools, they grew up doing them uh, in their summer breaks, everybody knows the exercises. But all the parents have to take a turn. So I get the call, and I respond a little bit like Moses did. I am literally the worst person you could ask to do this job. I don't know the exercises. I just, I've, I've seen them. I, I've, I've, I ended up doing printouts and kind of looking at, I, I don't know the exercises. I haven't grown up with this. I said, anybody would, would do a better job of this than me. And their response was similar to God's here. They said, don't worry about it. You won't be alone. There's two other people that, people that are going to help you with it. You know, there'll be three parents and it, it'll be really easy. So my day comes, and there are about 30 kids um, in, in, showing up in this community center parking lot, and they're all staring at us. And there's, there's three of us. Just before the, the music starts, they push me into the center, and they go like, the two of them on either side, they go like this. <laughs> well, no, I'm the only one, literally, that anybody is seeing. And I, I, I'm, I'm standing there, and I still don't know any of the exercises. Thankfully, most of the kids did, so I just, I looked at them and followed them, and they were supposed to be following me. It was just a disaster. But you go through an experience like that, and you're like, yeah, when you tell me that you're going to be there with me, that may not be such a, a, a consolation. You know, you standing over there, and you off to the side, like, that, that wasn't any help to me. And, and maybe that's what you're feeling when God calls you to do something, when you have an assignment, whether it's to serve, to help, to speak, this idea that God is with you, maybe you're thinking, yeah, but I don't know if that's enough. 
And the message here in scripture is unlike those times where you may have been let down and left hanging, God is there when the music starts. God, God does not check out when we are facing the heat of uh, the situation, the difficulty, that moment. Uh, he is faithful and his presence in our lives is the strength that we need to handle the moment and to walk in the path that he's called us to. Now, in verse 12, God gives Moses a sign, and this is so interesting. So picture yourself feeling overwhelmed. Moses is going to, yeah, I just want you to, I just look at this personally from my experience. You know, we, we try and get people to, to take a turn, serve maybe once a month in the nursery. Tough assignment. Here he's asking Moses to deliver a nation from bondage in, is in Egypt, and he's a fugitive, he's wanted, he's, you know, all of this. He's asking him to do a really big thing. Well, he gives him a sign, but what kind of sign would you give to some, someone for that? He promises that after he brings the Israelites out of Egypt, he says, you'll, you'll worship me, you'll serve me here on this mountain. Well, he gives them a sign, but that sign will only be meaningful after he has gone over, gone through the path of obedience. Only after it's all done, in one sense, will he recognize that God has kept his promise. We know Moses did worship again and serve God on that mountain. He came to what came to be known as Mount Sinai. He did serve him there. He did deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. But often we only see those signs in reverse. After we have said, yes, Lord, I'll, I'll go. I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't feel equipped. I don't feel prepared. I'll do what you say. And as we walk through that path of obedience on the other side, we see the fulfillment of the sign. We see God having proven himself once again. And it is only then that our faith is strengthened after we face the trial. And, and that's a reminder to us that often we need to step out, trusting God, uh, walking in his ways when uh, we'd, we'd like something more tangible up front. Convince me, Lord, first, and then I'll do it. But it's the other way around. The, the confirmation comes on the other side of obedience. So, so far we said, draw near to the God of fire. Take off your sandals and recognize the holiness that, God, uh, the, the holiness that is God. Treat him with reverence. Then we said, trust the God of the rearview mirror. So much about who God is. In the moment, we can't see it. In the future, we don't, uh, we, we don't possess it. But as we look back, we can see his faithfulness, and that gives us the courage to move forward. Uh, finally, uh, we, we hear this message to know the God who is, not the God who we want him to be, not the God who we imagine him to be. Here, uh, the, the message is, unless you're willing to learn who God is and how he has revealed himself, you will end up projecting your own opinions and assumptions and calling that thing God. And so here the message, know the God who is, not the God who you want him to be. Now, I'm going to guess that 
everyone in this room, almost everyone in this room, has experienced something along the lines of what Moses ran into next in this story. He's been talking to God since verse 4. Their conversation has ranged from sandals to suffering. Uh, they've talked about things from uh, Moses' mission to God's reassurance. They've, they've had a lengthy discussion. And, and they really have, have uh, covered a lot of topics. And now it's all about to happen. Now it's, it's all coming together. And in verse thir 13, Moses realizes he's reached that uncomfortable point in the conversation where you've been really talking about a lot of things, you've gone into it in a lot of detail, and you realize you need to know the name of the person you're speaking to, and you realize, I don't know their name. It's that awkward time in the conversation. And Moses pushes on through it, and he asks God his name. And God, instead of just answering him right out of the gate, he actually makes the moment more awkward. So uh, after, after asking him uh, his name, in verse 14, it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, that's not technically God's name yet, but he is communicating something uh, important and uh, powerful about himself. In the Bible, you'll probably notice I don't think I've ever heard anybody call God, I am who I am. Um, he, in fact, isn't called, I am who I am in the Bible, because that's not his name yet. He's going to give us a setup for his name, which is going to come shortly. Uh, but for, for now, he's, he's going to say something about himself. And we, we talk like this. Maybe you're talking to a neighbor. You're talking to a friend. Maybe you talked to someone this morning. And they said, wow, what a snowstorm yesterday. That was crazy. Yeah, I, was, I spent about three hours uh, shoveling my driveway, and I was just exhausted, and I came to the end of it, and guess what happened? Well, I think this happened for most of you, right? The snowplow came and filled my driveway entrance up with more snow, gave me another hour's work. And what do we say in response? It is what it is. And when we say it is what it is, and we love to say this, what we're saying is, boy, that was hard, that was unexpected, that was terrible, but you have to accept that. You can't, you know, that's just the way things are. That's, that's how things are to be. And when God said, when Moses asked, hey, when I'm, I'm going to talk to some people, and they're probably going to ask me, might ask me your name, so I just probably should confirm that before I go on. God says, I am who I am. And what he's saying by that is, uh, he, his being and his very existence is, is not up for grabs. He is who he is. He is one to be accepted. He's not the God who you imagine him to be, not the God you assume him to be. He's not the God of your imaginations or your private musings. He is the God who is. And that means we take him at his word. We, uh, we, we, we accept who he is. Uh, that means that he's not taking suggestions for his divine attributes, that means that his, his plan isn't up for grabs. We, we, don't, we don't get to say, you know, God, I think I'd like you to be a, like this. I'm kind of needing you to be this kind of God now. No, God is who he is. He, he is one who we are to accept. Uh, 
and to take at his word. And that means we, we only way you know who God is, the only way you know God is is by reading more about his word, studying more about his word. Because without how the word that reveals who he is, we project our own assumptions onto him about who he is. So that's, that's the starting point. God is who he is. Uh, he, he is not, his character is not up for grabs. But later he gets to his name. So in verse 14, he st- says, tell them that I am has sent me to you. And uh, here it's talking about he, 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 he is existence himself. He, he has life in himself. He gives life. He creates life. I am. Now, the word, the name is I am if God's saying it. If other people are saying it, they use it in grammatical rules. Say you, you use a third person. So uh, that's why you get the other name in verse 15, the Lord, and that is he is. So he says, my name is I am, but when you're calling me that, you call me he is. Uh, and you're saying, Paul, I never don't know where it says he is. When you see the Lord in all capitals like that, you notice in your Bible it's all capitals. It's not like saying, boy, this is really important. And so I, I, like, I like my name in all caps. It's actually the name uh, he is. It's the name Yahweh in Hebrew. But uh, at, a, at a certain point, Jews were so afraid of taking the name of the Lord in vain that they stopped pronouncing it. They stopped writing it uh, out fully, and they would take the uh, consonants for the word for the name uh, Yahweh, or he is, and they would um, put the consonants for Lord above it so that people would always pronounce it as Lord, even though it said Yahweh. And so when you see all caps, that is the personal name of God. Uh, it, it's printed as, as Lord, but it is the name Yahweh, he is. And, and, and it is that uh, picture of, of uh, who he is. If you see a capital L with small case O-R-D, that is uh, just the regular name Lord, which means master or um, leader or uh, the one who is uh, in charge. To call God Yahweh or he is, is to say he's the essence of life. Uh, he, he is the one who uh, gives light but needs no fuel like the burning bush. But also like the burning, burning bush, he is the God who can work with kindling without burning it up. He works with bushes and yet can do so in a way that doesn't set them aflame, uh, set them uh, in a way that burns them up so that they uh, are destroyed. And we know that because his full name is the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Calling him that reminds us that he's the God who works with broken pots and flawed individuals. As soon as you say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we know, okay, I need to go back to how God has revealed himself in the past. How he has connected himself to this world. And so he's revealed himself in history and in scripture. But when you remember Abraham, you remember the guy who called his wife his sister so he could avoid getting beaten up. God says, I'm his God. 
When you remember Isaac, you remember the guy who was about to give away uh, the promise and the blessing that God said was to go to one son. He was about to give it to the other son because he thought he was a cool hunter and made delicious soup. God says, I'm his God too. When you remember Jacob, you remember the one who cheated his brother and lied to his father. And God says, I'm his God too. And he reveals himself as the God of flawed individuals because he is the God who transforms those who come to him in faith. He is the one who can change the eternity, change the character, change the direction of those who would come in faith and give their lives to him in trust. Those who would take off their sandals. They can be refined by that fire. And so it says in Hebrews eleven sixteen, he is not ashamed to be called their God. Isn't that encouraging? He's not, he's not ashamed to be called our God. He knows the sins. He knows the background. He knows how we mess up. He's not ashamed to be called our God because that our God is the fire that, that can refine and purify He's the one who can change us and transform our lives. And that happens as we take off our sandals, as we submit to him as he is, as we come before him in reverence and awe. And so we need to ask ourselves, have we done that? Is, is that you? Is that the way that you relate to God? Have you treated him with the fear that he deserves? Or are some of you this morning, are you playing with fire? Are you relating casually to this God who can consume, who can destroy, who has as judge of the universe every right to destroy sin and evil? Are you casual with your faith? Casual with fellowship? Are you casual with service, with the mission that God has given us? Or are you here for him to burn off the impurities in your life and say, I, I need that fire. I, I want the fire to purify me, to burn off that which is not, not of you, not eternal, not, not, not pure. Because I want to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Do you know the God who is who he is? Do you know the, the, the God as he has revealed himself? Or are you pretending that he is who you want him to be? Are you projecting your own assumptions onto him? Are you imagining him to be the God? Uh, I heard somebody said that God was like this. I, I, I kind of liked him to be like that. God is who he is. God will be who he will be. We don't have a say in that. And that's actually good news. Because the God who is, is so much greater than the God who we might imagine him to be. He's a God who takes people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he transforms their character. He takes people who are known as deceivers and cheaters and turns them into men and women of faith. The God who is, is the one who takes people like Moses People who, with all of their good intentions, fell flat on their face and failed. People who thought, I'm done for. I'm 80. I've tried everything. Nothing worked. 
I guess this is all there is. God takes people like him and turns them into people of influence, people of character, people of humility. And that comes as we would quieten ourselves in reverence before uh, this God who is and trust him, invite his work in our lives. And yes, it comes as we say yes to what seem at the time like impossible asks from God. How am I going to lead a nation out of, out of slavery? How am I going to stand up to Pharaoh? I don't know what your assignment is. I don't know what God has asked you to do. I don't know what he's asking you to do right now. But I know that God is the one who stands by our side and doesn't disappear as the music starts. And I know that with him at your side, him going before, him, before you, it is not your contribution that's the deciding factor. And so give yourself to him. Trust him. And even when you can't see what he's doing in your present, it doesn't make sense what he's calling you to do in your future. Keep looking back to what he has done and find confidence in the God of the rearview mirror. Because he can be trusted. He's a faithful one. Let's look to him now in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, would you forgive us for casual thoughts about you, casual thoughts about our sin? You're the God of fire. And so we ask you to burn the impurities in our lives. Help us to trust you when we can't see what you're doing. And help us to remember what you've done to give us courage for the future. Father, keep us from worshiping a, a God that we make in our own image. You are who you are, and that's just the way we want it. We praise you. In Jesus' name.